0: It's Christ the King Sunday, and in the Christian calendar, this is the last Sunday of the year. So we could almost say Happy New Year, but not quite. Um, the Christian calendar starts over with Advent, which will begin next week. Um, but for now, we're going to close out our Christian year, and we're going to read a pretty familiar story. Um, hopefully, we'll all learn something new from it. Is anybody here a movie fan? Uh, familiar with the movie Heat from the 90s? I was like, yeah, I'm a movie fan. No, don't know the movie. Um, you, you can't see. That's Robert De Niro's face obscured by the light bulb. Um, if you don't know the movie, it's great. You should check it out, but it's kind of a crime thriller heist, and it stars Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Um, Robert De Niro plays a, a career criminal who's really in control of everything, um, but he's on the wrong side of the law, and then Al Pacino plays a detective trying to find him, whose personal life is just spiraled out of control. It's a great movie. It was praised for its uh, technical accuracy. The director put a lot of effort into making sure that it felt like a very real, um, plausible uh, thriller. Who said they were familiar with the movie? Like one of you, two of (laughs) you. Okay. Do you know what else the movie was famous for, just as a film? That's right. So it's the first time Al Pacino and Robert De Niro appeared on screen together. They'd been in The Godfather Part Two before, but they never appeared on screen together because they were playing characters separated by several decades. This is the first time in either of their careers that they shared a scene. So from a film fan perspective, this was a big moment for people watching Um, And in the story itself, uh, this moment is very tense. And everything is kind of built to this moment. And then afterwards, everything in the movie sort of changes. And while they're meeting and having this conversation, there's this sort of sense of inevitability. That after they meet, after they've laid their cards on the table and explained who they are to each other and what their plans are, the next time they meet, something big is going to happen. And it does. It's a really good movie. You should check it out. Um, similarly, we're going to read an account from John's version of Jesus's life story. Um, only this time it's not two men on a level playing field laying their cards on the table. This time it's, uh, two men where one of them has all the cards and the other one is doing everything he can to keep up. One is the embodiment of God with us and the other is a proxy of, For everything that's broken and messed up in the world. And deeper than that, it's two worldviews, two kingdoms that are about to collide violently. So if you would, turn with me and your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to read verses 33 through 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate answered, So you are a king. Jesus answered, "'You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice.'" Now reading this, you get a sense that Pilate is both annoyed by having to play referee for this religious squabble between the locals in this backwater suburb of the Roman Empire... But you also get a sense that he's struggling with the knowledge that he's way out of his depth. That he doesn't know what to make of this man in front of him. And he just can't keep up. And as we'll see shortly, just like in the film Heat, these two men come away from this uh, situation completely changed. Now... To really get a full grasp of everything that Pilate would have been dealing with, we need to know a few things about who he was and what he did. Um, So a little brief history lesson. Pilate was effectively the governor of the province of Rome that Jerusalem was a part of, and uh, he'd been there probably a few years by the time uh, the event that we're reading about happened. The governor had the responsibility of collecting taxes. He couldn't raise them, but he could collect them, and Every year, he had to basically make a circuit around his province to visit the major population centers, hear cases, uh, and just kind of be the face of the empire to the subjects at the outer, uh, outer borders. On his first visit to Jerusalem, Pilate marched in, and he had his soldiers with him, and they had their battle standards. And on the Roman battle standards was always the bust of the emperor, Now, to the Jews, this represented a graven image, an idol, because the Romans viewed the emperor as a god, and the Jews did not. Out of respect, every governor prior to Pilate had removed those busts from the top of the battle standards. Pilate didn't. And when they asked him to, he refused, because in his mind, he didn't owe anything to these hillbillies, who were superstitious, who had this weird, these weird customs, he wasn't going to do it. So on his way back home, he was followed by a group of Jewish men who basically hounded him the entire way. I mean, they literally followed him to his hometown to bug him about what he'd done. In response, he gathered them up in the amphitheater in Caesarea and threatened to kill them. And rather than acquiesce, The people said, fine, kill us, but don't do that again. Now, Pilate was bluffing because he didn't have the authority to kill people for that reason. And precedent had been set for him to do what they asked him to do. So not only did they call his bluff, but then when the emperor heard about it, he had Pilate whipped and said, next time, just try to keep the peace. Don't be that guy. We're just trying to keep things uh, settled down here because the area was already kind of a hotbed for religious violence. <laughs> so, the next thing that happened is that during this time, the Jewish water supply was inadequate. Um, they needed drinking water, they needed water for cleaning, and they needed water for ceremonial purposes. And they didn't have it. So, Pilate decided to build aqueducts in Jerusalem, which is a good thing. There wasn't any money for it. And he didn't have the power to raise taxes. So what he did was he went to the temple treasury and took money that wouldn't have been used for sacrificial purposes. He took surplus money. So what he did wasn't wrong. And what he did was necessary. But it was still unpopular because he took money from their religious coffers. Now, nobody had any authority to question him on this, but it's still something that kind of rubbed everybody the wrong way. Um, and then the third thing that happened, this was after Jesus' crucifixion, but it's worth mentioning. He came back on one of his visits, and he had, uh, it was customary for them to stay in the ancient um, homes of the Herods, the Jewish kings, the, Herod, the Herodian line. So he stayed there, and in the home he put up shields, votive shields, that had the name and the face of the emperor engraved on them. And again, he offended the sensibilities of the Jews because not only was he bearing a false image of a god, he was also doing it in one of their uh, cultural centers. And he got in trouble again. Now, we don't know exactly what happened because he was called back to Rome for this offense. But on his way back, Tiberius, the emperor, died. And so after, after that point, we don't know anything about what happened to Pilate. We know he was on his way back. But then he disappears from the history books. The only reason we really pay any attention to him is because he's in Scripture in this very pivotal moment. So, Pilate was a little bit arrogant and very unpopular with the people. Everybody understand that? So into this situation barges the Jewish authorities. And knowing what we know about Pilate's relationship with the Jews... It's probably safe to assume that the Jewish authorities had a veiled threat underlying their request to have Jesus crucified. Kind of like, you're already on thin ice, and we've got a problem. We want you to fix it. And if you don't fix it for us, then you're going to have more trouble. He's had enough trouble by this point. He's had the indignity of the emperor siding against him with these people. And now he's in the middle of another fight. He's pushed into a corner. And by all accounts, he doesn't really want to kill Jesus. I mean, everything you read about this encounter from a little ahead of it and a little behind it, he's not, he doesn't understand what the deal is, and he wants to get past it. But his past actions have given the Jewish authorities leverage over him to do what they want. And he doesn't really have any other choice except to try to navigate this mess as best he can. None of this would have been lost on Jesus. Jesus, walking into this court, knowing who Pilate is and what he's done, and he has to sense that Pilate is nervous, because no matter what Pilate does, he's going to make somebody mad. If he doesn't turn Jesus over to be crucified, then he's going to anger these religious uh, chief priests, Who can then say to the emperor, this guy had a chance to kill uh, an insurrectionist, a rebel, somebody who claimed to be a king above you. And he didn't do it. On the other hand, Jesus wasn't the only person in this time period who claimed to be the Messiah or the Son of God. And normally these men had very ardent and violent followers. And so by crucifying Jesus, he ran the risk of starting a revolution from uh, from his disciples. So, he's between a rock and a hard place, and this conversation happens between them. Are you their king, he asks. Subtext, just tell me something that will allow me to to make a decision easier. Just say you're a king so that I can pass judgment on you, and it's over. I just need an easy way out of this. Jesus says, where did you hear that? Did somebody else tell you, or is this something you've come up with? Jesus is putting the decision back on Pilate. Subtext, you have to make of me what you will on your own. This is nobody else's decision to make. Here I am. You have to decide if I'm a king or not. So Pilate says, I'm not one of you. I have no idea. Your people turned you over to me, so what have you done to make them so mad that they want to kill you? Subtext: Work with me here. (laughs) I don't know how you people do things. uh, And you talking in riddles is making this that much harder. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that's from the world. It's something else entirely. And if you had anything to worry about for me or my followers, you'd already know it. Subtext. You don't even have a frame of reference for what you're in the middle of. But relax, because I'm going to turn this whole thing over without a single shot fired. Okay, so you are a king. Subtext is that a yes or a no? I'm lost. So Jesus says, Those are your words. All you need to know is that I was born and I have come into the world so that people will know the truth. Everyone who hears my voice has a chance to know the truth. The subtext here is don't get hung up on the label. I'm so much more than one word can describe, but here's a hint. This is the most important conversation of your entire life. It's interesting to note that Jesus is brought into the governor's chamber and then out again because Jewish law made it forbidden for them to enter into the household of the Gentiles. It was an act of uncleanliness. So the Jewish authorities couldn't go inside without risk being made unclean. And this was the Friday before the Sabbath during Passover. So their sensibilities were really touchy at this point. Um, Oddly enough, uh, they're conspiring to murder a guy, and that doesn't seem to bother them. But we're not going to go into the house of a Gentile, because that's just a bridge too far. Um, But Jesus goes in, and with him he takes the truth of who he is... To people who the Jewish authorities in their dogmatic religious zeal refused to associate with. Kyle talked about last week when, uh, when Jesus died, the temple curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple tore from top to bottom. And if that's the moment that signifies God breaching the gap that separates us from him... Then Jesus entering into the home of a Gentile during his trial uh, signifies the moment when God breached the threshold that separates us from one another. Second thing, Jesus doesn't let Pilate off simply by telling him who he is. He leaves that decision with him. Pilate has to decide whether or not Jesus really is a king. And in the same way, we have a responsibility to deal with Jesus ourselves. We can't rely on other people to make those decisions for us. And we can't just go along with something because that's what everybody else is doing. The decision has to be ours. Either Jesus will be our king or he won't. Either we'll give him lordship or we'll lump him in with all the other good teachers in history. But it's up to us to make that decision based on what we know and what Jesus has revealed of himself to us. A little side note, I find it interesting that Pilate writes a sign to place on Jesus's cross. Um, It was customary when somebody was executed by crucifixion that they would do it at the edge of town and they would leave them up for a while uh, and then hang a sign that put the charge that they were executed for. On the cross, And the idea was that anybody coming to the town who had a mind to commit the same kind of crime would see what the punishment for that crime was. So Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the Jewish authorities didn't like this because they didn't say Jesus was the King of the Jews. They said he claimed to be. And so they went to Pilate and said, hey, um, why don't you change that sign? Because he just claimed to be, we don't think he's really our king. And Pilate, what's Pilate's response? He says, what I've written, I've written. Subtext. I did your dirty work for you. And don't test my patience. But I also think there's a subtext of belief in what he says. I can't help but think that Pilate did this as a way of proclaiming something about what he believed in who Jesus was after this conversation. Because he could have changed it if he wanted. He had the authority to. And in another kind of weird way, as a Roman governor, he acted as the proxy for the empire. And so anything he committed to writing became unofficially official policy of the Roman government. By writing down as a charge that Jesus was the king of the Jews, in a weird way, he made it the stance of Rome that this was the king. And what's the first thing that happens when a king is coronated? He's crowned, he's enthroned, and he's proclaimed as the king. And finally, there's the issue of the phrase, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, it's written in most translations as, My kingdom is not of this world. But if you want to get Greek nerdy technical, um, the, prep- the preposition preposition um, is ektu kosmo tutu, which means from this world. So it isn't just a matter of the kingdom of heaven being on earth, but not behaving like anything else on earth. It's a matter of a fundamental origin. That it's not from the earth. It's not even the kind of thing that grows here. It doesn't start here. Um, anyone ever had to deal with kudzu in New York? Do you know where it came from? Uh, China or Japan? Asia. Not here. (laughs) Right? Um, And it's a great lesson on uh, why you don't bring plants from overseas. But um, it's really invasive. And when it was brought over to control erosion, it did its job really well. And then it just took over everything else. You can't hardly kill it. Um, You can't burn it. You can't cut it down. You can't kill it with pesticide. And there's a reason for it. It's because it goes real deep into the ground, and it actually can grow underground about three feet in a day. And so it basically kind of goes through the earth and gets a sense of what the soil is like around it and will sprout there or not based on uh, how hostile it is, I guess. Um, Which is why it's so hard to kill, because what you're killing is not even the plant. You're just killing uh, what it's showing But it's not from here. It's from somewhere else. And once it's here, it's very invasive and it's hard to control. Um, Another illustration by way of personal experience. Um, This summer there was a fire at my parents' house. Uh, Nobody got hurt. Two rooms were destroyed. Kind of isolated in the back part of the house. Um, And so we're I was there with them when it happened and we were talking with the contractors who were brought in afterwards to fix the house. And we're thinking, Do they just need to kind of fix these rooms and everything else is going to be fine? They said, no, the whole top floor and uh, the main floor and the top floor have to be emptied out. Um, we have to redo this whole room. But everything else in the house has been Uh, Damaged by smoke, whether you know it or not. So we have to take everything out, and we have to clean everything, repaint it, and redo uh, those two rooms from scratch. We can't use the same stuff that's here because it's damaged. We've got to bring in new stuff. We've got to bring in new materials. We've got to bring in new drywall, new insulation, new electrical fittings, everything. To make this house uh, the way it's supposed to be. So like kudzu, the kingdom of heaven isn't from here. And it infiltrates everything about our world. And No matter how hard we try to cut it back or burn it down or get rid of it, it's still going to grow. In spite of our best efforts, uh, the world's best efforts to stop it. And just like in my parents' house, how we can't start... With the material that we have here, we have to bring in new material. The kingdom of heaven is something that's made completely different uh, than what kingdoms of the world are made of. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world, he means it's a totally foreign concept. It's a totally foreign kingdom that's coming in an invasion. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, everything you know about power and lordship and how to treat others is irrelevant, in this conversation. I've come to do something completely different than anything you've ever seen. And with all the trouble that Pilate's been in, you can almost sense this yearning in his heart to see what that kind of power looks like. Because the kind of power he's been dealing with has gotten him in a lot of trouble. What would it be like if this kind of power that he's faced with now did take over the world? What this moment is is the moment when all the imagined security and faith in anything other than Jesus comes crashing down. To the Jewish authorities, they're sure that by using political machinations, they can stop Jesus, and they can't. To Pilate, he's sure that he's losing his grip on the situation, and his power is useless in the situation, and it is. And so I wonder, how many things in our lives do we place our hope in that aren't Jesus'? How many people do we turn to? How many ideas do we invest our hearts in? How many opportunities do we chase, hoping that they're going to be the ones that solve our problems, fix our wrongs, satisfy our longings, comfort our loneliness? Let me tell you something. None of it will. There's not a president, a senator, a judge, a governor who can bring about the kingdom that Jesus rules. And none of them can undermine it either. No job can bring you eternal life, No relationship can complete you outside of Jesus. No amount of money is going to buy you riches in the economy of heaven. No house in the right neighborhood gets you better real estate there. No status symbols here buy you any clout in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus came to usher in something completely different. And if we're placing our hope in anything else, we're going to miss it. And if we're fearful that anything can undermine it, then we don't really understand it. Jesus said, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. He's not talking about some vague, self-satisfied, pseudo-philosophical uh, notion about finding one's own truth. He's talking about something real and something objective that he can point to, completely independent of the whims of the culture, the expedient political language of the expectations of the society around him. And the truth is that Christ came to initiate God's saving plan to reconcile all things to himself. Not by force or coercion or by cunning or by maneuvering, but by laying down his very life for the lives of people who are trying to kill him in the first place. And by joining him in that humble posture, we can also join him in eternal life. And if that's the case, then we've got to be willing to do away with everything in us that clings to this worldly kingdom That we can be agents of his kingdom. Pope Pius XI articulated it wonderfully. Um, He said, this is kind of long, so bear with me. If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief revealed to truths and to doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spur natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. He must reign in our bodies and in our members, which should serve as instruments to the interior sanctification of Of our souls, or to use the words of of the Apostle Paul as instruments of justice unto God. It may seem like a curious thing to talk about Jesus' crucifixion so close to the celebration of his birth, but it is appropriate that as we begin to enter a season that reflects on his arrival into our midst and anticipates his return, that we also remember what he came to do. And remember that just as his entry into the world was unexpected, so too was the nature of what he came to do. And the nature of his death, which ended in an empty tomb and a resurrected body that overturned the broken ways of the world in order to set them back to the way they were intended. I want to leave you with this description of Christ's divine sabotage of the world. From Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, from the very start, chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we're thankful uh, for this morning and for our time together, that we can be here to worship you, that we can be here in fellowship with one another, and that we are united in the common love that we have for you. As we close out this Uh, liturgical year, help us to remember all that it meant for you to be a part of our lives, to enter into history, to set forth uh, the start of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we enter into a new liturgical year, help us to uh, Live in such a way that our lives are testimony to the anticipation of your arrival. And as we anticipate that, help us also to remember all that it means. Help us to remember that you lived among us, that you walked among us, that you suffered and died for us, and that you resurrected to overturn the power of death, that we might be joined with you in eternal life. Fill our minds and our hearts with that knowledge that it might overflow in our day-to-day lives and the conversations that we have and the relationships that we build and the things that we do. And empower us through your Holy Spirit to live as shining lights and agents of your kingdom in this world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.